You can learn a lot about somebody if you rummage through their mail. You can figure out what bills they're paying. You can figure out what they like to order online. You can figure out what weddings they're invited to. You probably even figure out what college they went to because colleges are always sending you stuff asking for money, even like decades after you graduate, right? Have you ever gone away on vacation and asked somebody else to pick up your mail and part of you thinks, ooh, I, I hope they don't look at it too closely. Yeah, me too. You can learn a lot about somebody by rummaging through their mail. This summer, we're taking a look at the book of Revelation, like the first quarter of the book or so. And really what the first quarter of the book of Revelation is, is us rummaging through the mail of the New Testament church. So in the first few chapters of this book, Jesus is, is delivering some letters to seven different New Testament churches. And in these letters given to these churches through a, a revelation of John, the same guy who wrote down the gospel of John, Jesus is offering encouragement and correction, mostly correction, to these seven churches as they struggle through this early existence in the Christian faith. And, and though these letters were written to these churches that existed almost 2,000 years ago, uh, there's still application for us today. And so we're going to look at these letters of, of correction and encouragement that Jesus sends to these churches and just ask the question, how might this apply to us corporately as a church and individually as followers of Jesus? And today we get to look at, at the second letter that Jesus wrote to one of these churches. It's a, it's a letter to a church in an ancient city called Smyrna. Now, now this church was situated in a city that is, is now still in existence called Izmir, Turkey. But it was called Smyrna back in the day. Now, this ancient city of Smyrna was a harbor town, meaning there were lots of people coming into the town. It means it was a well-resourced town. So Smyrna was known for having paved streets, a big deal way back then. They had a library, also rare back in the day, and a gymnasium, as well as a whole bunch of Roman temples, a bunch of Roman temples, because Rome occupied this territory and demanded that they set up these temples. And so that's what the city of Smyrna was known for. There was a strong Roman presence, of course, but also a sizable Jewish presence in this ancient city. And both of those forces, the Roman force and the Jewish presence, they both served to, to bother the Christian community in Smyrna. And that's why Jesus writes to this church. It's one of only two letters where Jesus doesn't offer a stern word of correction. Like the other five are all Jesus like really calling out the church for failing in some significant way. But that's not the tone of the letter he sends to the Christians gathered in Smyrna. And the reason is because I think it was already really, really hard for them. They did not need a nasty letter from Jesus saying, oh yeah, you're also doing this wrong. What we know about this young, small church in Smyrna is that they were made up of people who were intensely poor, and they were facing increasing persecution from both the Romans and the Jews. Life was really, really difficult for them. And so Jesus writes to them to encourage them. Uh, specifically, Jesus writes with a very simple message. He, he writes with a message that says, I see you, and hold on. Let's look again at what he says, starting at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. So again, this is Jesus, king of the world, savior of the world, saying to this small, struggling gathering of Christians, through John, he's saying, I see you, I know it's hard. 
You ever gotten like a text message from a friend who knows you're going through a difficult time and, and all they say to you is like, look, I know it's rough. I know. I see it. And I'm with you. They don't have to offer a solution. They don't have to offer you any advice. But just knowing that somebody who cares about you knows, it's like so encouraging, isn't it? Like I'm not alone in this. Somebody sees how painful this is. That's Jesus doing that for this church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich spiritually, and the slander of those who say they are Jews. Now he goes on, I see you, but I want you to hold on because dot, 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 <laughs> it's going to get a lot worse. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I imagine when they got this letter, they're like, what are we about to suffer? What's going on? We don't know. <laughs> What do you know, Jesus? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, this is the book of Revelation. Numbers are more figurative than literal. This 10 days doesn't mean you're only going to be in jail for 10 days. 10 days in apocryphal ancient literature means a defined, limited set of time, meaning some of you are going to be put into prison. It may not last forever. There's a beginning and an end to it. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Summarize it like this. Jesus writes a letter to this small, struggling church, and he says, I see you. It's going to get worse. Many of you are going to go to jail, and some of you are going to die. Now, why would Jesus write this letter? Is it just that he wants to give them a heads up? Like, hey, you might want to get your affairs in order. That will you've been putting off. You might want to bring that to the front burner. No, I think I know the reason why Jesus wants them to, to know this is because he, he wants them to hold on to him in the face of all that's frightening. He wants them, despite all the things that are going to seem to be overwhelming to them, imprisonment and death, persecution to the point of losing your life, he wants them to keep their hearts and their minds anchored in him through all of it. Now, thankfully, you and I, we have never experienced that level of difficulty for our faith, of persecution for our faith. Now, there are some followers of Jesus in other parts of the world who are experiencing difficulty similar to this church, believe it or not. In places like Lebanon and Afghanistan and other parts of the world, there are Christians who are losing their lives for being followers of Jesus. It happens every single day. But thankfully, you and I, we don't live in a reality where that happens to us. We are not being actively persecuted. We don't know this kind of fear. And just as an aside, you need to know that we are definitely not in this country being persecuted for our faith. To say so is a disservice to those who live in parts of the world where they are and to those who've gone before us who have been. Just because someone you might not like might be in the White House, that doesn't equal persecution. Just have to say it. Or if they eventually come for churches and take away the tax status of churches, that's not persecution. Or because we live in a world where a lot of other people don't share the worldview that we have or the faith that we have, that's not persecution. Just because you may feel increasingly like an outsider because of the things that you believe that a whole lot of people have believed before this time, but all of a sudden now you're the outsider, that feeling of being on the outs, that is not persecution. It's not. What we're experiencing here in the West, what we're experiencing here in the West is 
is the loss of comfort that comes with an increasingly secular society. We used to live in a society that was, that was very agreeable to people of faith and religious systems, in particular the Christian one. And that's no longer the case, and it's going to get worse. And that means it's going to get more uncomfortable for people of faith who have enjoyed a position of privilege in Western culture. But that's not been the norm throughout history. We are an anomaly throughout history. Just read the book of Revelation. Thankfully, we have not yet known the sword for following Jesus. But that doesn't mean that his word to the Christians in Smyrna does not apply to us. There are still things that we corporately as a church fear or that individually as Christians we might fear that, that, that threaten to take our eyes off of the person and the work of Jesus. You see, Jesus wrote this letter to the Christians in Smyrna, and he might as well have been writing it to us because they were tempted to do the same thing that we are tempted to do. They were tempted in the face of extreme persecution to let, to let fear increase. And here's what Jesus knew, that when fear increases, faith decreases. Your heart cannot hold equal amounts of both fear of the world and faith in Jesus. One of the two is going to win out. One of the two is going to kind of drive the car, so to speak. And Jesus' concern is that this church in Smyrna would give up to a point or give over and into fear to the point where fear is driving things for them. And what he doesn't want to see happen is fear take over. Because when fear takes over, it's going to try and tempt you to do one of two things. It's going to tempt you to give in or to act out. When fear takes over and starts driving things for you, it's going to tempt you to say, well, i got to give in. I'm afraid of being sidelined culturally. I'm afraid of being the one who isn't progressive enough or insightful or evolved enough. Or I'm afraid of being defeated by this thing or defeated by this idea. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give over to it. I'm just going to give in to it. And I'm going to fall in line with it, which is its own form of unfaithfulness. For the sake of peace, you give in to the thing that you know is not right or is at odds with what you believe, and so you just kind of relinquish and in despair. You say, eh, they're going to win or this is going to win. It doesn't matter. I might as well give in. When fear takes over, it tempts you towards giving in. On the other end, when fear takes over, it tempts you towards acting out in a desire to, to keep control, in a desire to remain in power, or to preserve the things in life that you enjoy that Jesus ultimately says are temporary, you are tempted when fear takes over to act out and say, well, what I need is more power, what I need is more control, what I need is to fight for these temporary earthly blessings and try desperately to hold on to them. So what I need is more earthly influence, more earthly power. What I need is to exert more of my control so that I can remain in power and in control in my life. And then what often happens is we end up compromising the values of the kingdom to hold on to the power of this kingdom, which is itself unfaithfulness. When fear takes over, you're tempted to give in, what's it matter, or to act out, I gotta fight to keep what I love in this temporary world and stay in power in this temporary world. 
But what Jesus writes to the Christians in Smyrna and what he says to you and to me is that we are, as followers of Jesus, we are not those who give in or those who act out. We are people who hold on. We hold on to him. Now, that might be easier said than done. You might be wondering, what in the world do I mean when I say that we hold on to Jesus? Well, Jesus himself clarifies this a little bit. Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus promises that as you hold on to him and keep him central, he will be with you, he will help you, and he will make it worthwhile for you. What it means to be holding on to Jesus, Jesus says himself, it means to be faithful even unto death. Faithfulness for Jesus meant keeping him front and center. Faithfulness for Jesus meant staying focused on the things that he's promised you, the things that he's accomplished for you, and the things that he said should matter most to you, keeping those things front and center for you so that they occupy the focus of your heart and your mind and that they're in front of your eyes at all times. Because when fear ramps up, it's going to say, you know what, this other thing needs to be most important. And what Jesus is saying is, no, I want you to be faithful to me. Hold on to me. Keep your focus on me. What I've done, what I've said, what I've promised, what I say is important. Keep your focus on me, even if holding on to me means death for you. And here's my promise to you. I'll help you endure. I'll be with you the whole time. And in the very end, even if faithfulness to me, even if refusing to give in or act out, means that you die, what I'll do for you is I'll make it worth it for you in the end. What does he say in verse 11? What he says is, I'll give you the crown of life and I'll be with you forever. You will not be touched by the second death. That's a, that's a book of revelation way of talking about being forever separated from the Father. So even if remaining faithful to me, holding on to the promises that I give to you means death for you, I'm going to make sure that in the very end there's a victory parade for you, that you win in the end and that you are never outside of the presence of the one who made you and who loved you and who saved you. I'm going to make it okay for you. Don't give in. Don't act out. I know it's scary. Hold on to me. Now, you might be asking the question, especially if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, well, what makes Jesus trustworthy? What makes him worthy of that level of trust that if I, if I keep my life focused on him rather than just give in to the fearful powers or act out and try to retain power and fight for it in this world, that if I hold on to him, it will be worth it for me in the end. Well, the answer to that is quite simple. And Jesus himself gives, gives an answer to that question at the beginning of this letter. Do you remember when I read it how he introduced himself? He introduced himself in a really interesting way. He didn't just say, hello, it's Jesus writing you a letter. He introduced himself in a really interesting way. He, he introduced himself as the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. 
First and the last was a book of Revelation way of saying, I'm the most important one. And why am I the most important? Because I faced what you faced. I died. They killed me too, and I came back to life. That makes me the one worthy of your trust. That makes me the one worthy of praise. He starts the letter basically by saying, you know my resume. You know who I am. I'm the one who's faced what you faced and overcame it. That's why you can trust me. That's why you can have faith in me. No matter what's stirring up fear in you, I'm going to be with you. I'll help you endure. I'm going to make it worthwhile for you. Don't give in. Don't act out as if your God in this world is the most important thing in the, ever. Hold on. Be faithful to me even unto death. Now, again, as I said at the beginning, you know, we, we don't have some of the fears facing us that the early church or other Christians today have facing them. But nonetheless, there are things that are fearful to you and to me and to us together as a church that threaten to, to make fear the primary facet of our Christian faith and, and threaten to take over the driver's seat of our lives. If we were able to get everybody together around a big table and talk about all the things that we could be afraid of, we could come up with a long list some of them we would all share. Some would be unique to you, unique to me, but we'd come up with a long list of things we're afraid of. Look, the world is changing at a rapid pace and in every conceivable way. And for some of us, that is very, very frightening. Pandemics are now a thing as well. That's scary. Uh, the Christian church that maybe you grew up in is, is losing influence in this world. For some of us, that's very scary. Crime is on the rise. That's scary. Not to mention the fact that our bodies still break down, and that's scary. Relationships still go sideways and sometimes never get better, and that's scary. Death still happens to people that we love, and it will one day happen to us, and that's scary. If we want to make a list of things that we're frightened of, uh, there is a long list to be made. There's lots for us to be afraid of. And yet what Jesus calls us to do is in the face of those fears, not give in or act out, but in the face of those fears, hold on to him. And so the question I have for you and for us as a church is, is what do we need to do in order to keep the person and the promises and the work and the words of Jesus front and center in our life so that when scary things emerge, we can endure to the end? Look, maybe you need to read God's word more so that you can, you can hear the promises of Jesus more. Or maybe you need to be surrounded by more of God's people so you can feel God's presence. Or maybe you need to come to church a little more, not for my sake, but for yours, so that you can, be, you can be given the gifts of God. Or maybe at the very least, what you need to do is confess that your life has been filled with a whole lot of fear. Fear of how the world is changing, all the scary things that are happening, and fear has gotten in the driver's seat of your life, and faith has lessened. Maybe at the very least, you just need to admit that. Confess it to God and say, I've, I've been tempted to just give in. I've been tempted to act out. I have let fear in the driver's seat of my life. Confess that, repent of that, and listen as Jesus forgives you for all of that. And what do you need to say to the fearful things in this world that are tempting to take over your life? 
And, and I do think that people of faith, one of the practices we should have is, be, is speaking to the things that cause fear for us. Whether we're just speaking to them in our own heart and mind or we are actually speaking to the fearful forces in this world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a whole long list of rhetorical questions that you need to ask all the fearful things in this world. I think there should be a dialogue inside your heart and mind and maybe with your actual lips that goes something like this. When a fearful thing comes to you and says, you just need to give in, you just need to give into it, give into it, or you need to fight back, fight back, retain the power and the temporary treasures of this world, what you need to say to the fearful thing is this, have you lived perfectly for me? Have you died sacrificially to forgive me? Are you coming back to save me? Have you promised a victory and a crown and a parade in eternity with me? Have you secured for me a life in my Father's presence that can never, ever be taken from me? No? Oh, I didn't think so. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to act out. I'm going to hold tight to the one who has done all those things for me. I know who he is, and I know his resume, and my heart and my mind and my hope are in him, period. Maybe that's the kind of conversation you need to have to all the fears in a fearful world. I'm doing some reading lately about, um, about the early church, in particular how the early church in the first 200 years grew so rapidly despite, despite everything standing in its way, uh, despite intense poverty among most of its adherents, and despite ongoing persecution the early church grew rapidly, miraculously it grew. And, and for the last 2,000 years, historians have asked the question, why, 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 why? And they've come to some conclusions as to why this church that had everything working against it grew so successfully in the first two to 300 years of its existence. And the answer is apart from miraculous intervention, although that was certainly part of it. But, but the reason this church grew from a, like a sociological perspective is not because they had great preaching, it's not because they had really cool buildings, it's not because they had great music, it's not because they taught everyone how to outreach to their friends and neighbors. Like, none of that happened. Almost none of that existed even for the first 500 years of the church. What, what grew the early church and what early church leaders taught their people was this, patient endurance in testing and trial and suffering. You go back to the earliest writings of the leaders of the church, what are they telling them? Be patient, endure in suffering. Be patient, endure in suffering. And what grew the early church was a watching world seeing all of these poor and oppressed and violently persecuted people being patient and enduring in suffering. Well, one great example of this is the ancient story of a, of a girl named uh, of a girl named Perpetua. Perpetua was about 21 years old. And in the year 203 AD, she was martyred. About six weeks prior to her martyrdom, she and five of her friends had become followers of Jesus. They had been catechized, taught the things of the Christian faith, and then they were baptized. And about the same time that they were baptized, the small group of believers, uh, the Roman emperor Severus, was starting to feel threatened by the Christian movement. He thought the Christian movement was a threat to Roman worship and life. And so he started targeting these, these small groups of Christians, and he rounded up Perpetua and her friends and put them in jail. 
Now, now, most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, even the ones in this group, they were poor, but Perpetua was not. She came from a family of higher means. And so as they were in jail, her father came to the jail and pleaded with her to allow him to bail her out. Or if he didn't allow her to bail him out, if she didn't allow him to bail her out, rather, that she would make the sacrifices to the Roman gods and be let out of jail. And she refused, 21 years old. She refused to sacrifice, refused to let herself be bailed out. And so then she and her five friends, recently baptized into the Christian faith, they were sent to the city of Carthage. And on May 7th, 203 AD, they were put into the Roman arena. You've seen the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe, right? That's what this was. In Carthage, they were put into the Roman arena. And the six of them stood there with Perpetua in the middle. And they stood shoulder to shoulder in the arena while wild animals were released to them and the gladiators walked around them. And this is documented from multiple historical sources that tell us that this group of six with Perpetua in the middle, they were attacked by wild animals, the worst being a wild cheetah that was let into the arena and it constantly lunged at them and bit them and, 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 and tried to pull them apart. And yet each time they were knocked down by one of these animals, it's said that Perpetua would stand up and she would stand shoulder to shoulder next to her fellow believers. And they didn't fight back. They didn't each run in their own direction. They got knocked down. They got bit at. They were covered in blood. And every time they were knocked down, they stood back up and they stood shoulder to shoulder. And they endured so long in the arena, shoulder to shoulder, as new followers of Jesus, that eventually the gladiators were sent in to end each of their lives one by one with the sword. And stories like that are repeated over and over and over again, hundreds of times in the early church. And the story is the same. A watching world saw their patient endurance and went, wow. I told you that six weeks before she was martyred, Perpetua was baptized. And it was traditional in the early church, especially in North Africa, that when an adult was baptized, on the occasion of their baptism, they were allowed to ask for a special gift from the Holy Spirit. They were able to ask the Holy Spirit to give them some special strength, some special gift. Do you know what Perpetua had asked for six weeks earlier? She asked for flesh endurance. In other words, kind of roughly translated from the Latin, she asked for the ability to endure while her flesh suffered. And Jesus answered that prayer. Now, you and I may never, ever see the sword, praise God. But the same Jesus who answered her prayer for patient enduring under suffering of the flesh, the same Jesus who wrote this letter to the church in Smyrna, the same Jesus who, who has allowed everyone who's come before you to patiently endure in the face of really scary, really fearful things, the same Jesus who's done all of that is the same Jesus who has called you, who loves you, who's chosen you, who's baptized you, who's forgiven you and made you his own. And who says to you, it may get bad, but I'm gonna be good to you. You know who I am. And now you may never face the sword, but no matter what you face, do you need to fear? Do you need to let fear in the driver's seat? The answer is absolutely not. 
You don't need to give in or act out. Just hold on. May your life bear such a witness in the face of fear. May you stand shoulder to shoulder with others who believe like you and with you. May you know that no matter what comes to threaten you, that there is a crown that waits for you. And may you say to a world that threatens you, may you say to that world in whatever form that threat comes, I know I can hold on because I know who holds me. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son Jesus Christ gives us the ability to endure. We thank you that we personally have not had to face the difficulties that others have had to face in following you. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that, that you would be with those who face suffering and difficulty and struggle far worse than we will ever know. But we pray that no matter what we're afraid of, be it illness or broken relationships or the changes of this world or pandemics coming back, whatever it is, Lord, whatever we're afraid of, help us. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit not to give in to fear, not to give over to it, not to act out and try to retain power and prominence in this world, but instead to hold on to you, your son, and who he is. Help us to patiently endure and in the very end receive the crown and until that end, Give a powerful witness to the rest of this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.